You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode 30 called Project-Based Learning and Choice Boards with Jennifer Scomial. In this episode, Geis and I welcome the 2019 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year, Jen Scomial. Jen talks about her recent win as State Teacher of the Year and shares her expert advice on student-centered learning. Next, we make Jen compete against Geis in another game of Two Truths and a Lie, followed by Geis and I discussing innovative choice boards as a highly effective way to differentiate your classroom. Check it out. Okay, guys, here we are, another episode. This is an exciting one because uh, spring is in full swing. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. I, I like spring. I like the fact that we just sprung forward with the clocks. I'm excited. I think we have a great guest for today and uh, we're going to get into it. We do. Yeah, it's it's probably our most high profile guest yet, which is really exciting for us. We have with us uh, Jennifer Scomial, who has been recently awarded the 2019 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year title. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. How are you? Thank you very much, guys. I'm doing great. I, I have to throw something out here real quick. Might be too soon, oh, might no. be salt on the wound, but did she beat you? Technically, she did. I was one of the county teacher of the year winners, as was Jen, and we all, well, not everybody applied, but I did apply, and she won, and I did not. Thanks for bringing it up. I appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I uh, just had to throw it out there, but hey, it's great to have you on today, and we just want to kind of get into it a little bit. What is this teacher of the year program and how did you get involved with everything? And now that you are like, I guess, queen of the castle for the year, <laughs> what are you doing with it? What's the castle like? <laughs> okay. So the easiest way to explain it is just, you know, people are familiar with earning the title of teacher of the year for their school, for their building. And for me, you know, we don't have more than one school in our district. So by winning it for my school, I also won it for the district. After that point, you apply for on the county level, which as Nick said, we're both in the same county cohort. So 21 counties in New Jersey, 21 county teachers of the year. And um, after that, we all got to meet one another and then we were encouraged you should apply for the state level. So it's one of those things, like once it gets started, you don't really say, no thanks, I'm gonna back out. You just kind of go with it. And um, you know, you mentioned to your colleagues, oh, I'm county teacher. And all of a sudden they start, come on, you gotta go, you gotta go for it. So I did apply for it. I had I was on maternity leave. So I came back in and I had to record a video of me teaching my class. And there were some essay questions and whatnot. And then I found out over the summer that I was selected. So one of the six um, selected out of the 21. And I just had to go in for an interview and a presentation. And I, you know, the only thing I can I can say that I've been told is something about my personality and my my interest, my passion, I guess, exudes me. And that's something that people felt um, other teachers would be able to relate to because 
I say, I don't know anything more than any other colleague of mine. I'm still learning, but it's something about, I guess, that eagerness to learn that, that they selected me. Well, I I think part of being a teacher is being a lifelong learner and you're obviously showing that. Before we get into your school and a little bit about what you do at your school, you said you, you have a passion, you have a drive and they could see that at your school. What would you say your, your passion and drive that they saw was? This one's hard because I don't like talking about myself. So that's, what's so hard about this whole thing. And I think it's just the the idea that I've always wanted to be a teacher. And so it's one of those things, you know, they say um, if you if you find what you love to do and you make it a career, you never work a day in your life. So it's never for me, it's never like, oh, I have to get up and go to work. You know, I hear people say that all the time for me. Yeah. I'm not a morning person all the time, but I love once I'm there, I love what I get to do. And I think that I try and give that advice to my students is that you don't go into a career because you make good money or because you have, you know, some other incentives. You go into it because you really want to do that for the rest of your life. That's true. And it kind of brings up something that I think is one of the most interesting aspects of you and and of, of your win. And that is just the type of school that you teach at and and kind of your background in teaching because it it was super unique. We were talking just a little bit before we started to record the segment about that, but I I was hoping you could sort of describe uh, your school and what it is and how it works and maybe how people or maybe even students could find out information about something like this if it's something they're interested in. Absolutely. Okay. So the, uh, I'm going to try and give you the short version of sure, things. Yeah. <laughs> I can be long-winded. So as a high school student, I, I went to this high school. So I knew about the structure of uh, Morris County School of Technology back when I was in high school. And the gist of it is that you have all of these different career paths that you might want to study. Carpet electrical, cosmetology, teaching. And so I was in the, uh, back then it was called the Child Related Careers Program. And it's since evolved um, when I took it over to become the Academy for Education and Learning. And it's just a four-year program that high school students They would um, select it in eighth grade that this is something they want to do, and they would basically be uh, electing to take this course over elective courses, over other options that might be out there in a high school setting. They're choosing this. So my students are there for four years. They take all of their academics, their English, math, all of that, and their elective courses are filled with the Academy for Education. So my kids come in, they learn about everything having to do with the teaching profession, And then they get to teach a preschool class when they walk through the other door on the other side of our classroom. So I have two rooms. One is a high school room and one is a preschool lab. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's really cool. These these are high school kids you're talking about that are in a pre, almost like a pre-service teacher program, but as freshmen through senior, like a normal high school environment, correct? Exactly, exactly. And I can say I trust them enough that I let my own girls go through the program. So my second daughter is currently in the preschool class. So it's a four day program and the high school students come in, they have two hours in the morning that they teach the preschool and then a different group comes in in the afternoon and they get to teach them. So they're doing lesson plans from ninth grade. And and these are lesson plans that colleagues of mine are like, wait, they have to fill out all that information. It's just a preschool class. Well, 
you start out really challenging, it's always easy to pare it down. I wouldn't want to go the other way with it. This is, fa it's so fascinating to me because I would, I, until this, I would never have even guessed that there could be a program for high schoolers that was so geared towards teaching to the point where you've actually got a, a classroom. You said there's a preschool where they can kind of go over and it's part of the tech school environment and they actually get to like try out lesson plans. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Oh yeah. So if you could envision the structure, the structure within my program is similar to looking at let's say an elementary school where you would have a principal you could almost equate what I'm doing to that of a principal then you have the teachers which in this case are my students the high schoolers and then you have the students in the program which in this case are the preschoolers so the structure is set up where I'm helping my students or what they are called we call them future educators I'm helping them with preparing their lessons they go into the other classroom they teach I'm sitting there observing them providing feedback and then they're revamping their lessons and it's just a cycle of them learning about teaching learning about anything you know um, child development classroom management all the things that you learn about in college but we just pare it down for them being in high school all right so how do you grade in this type of a system are you uh, I don't know standards based how do you grade these future teachers? It's actually very interesting that you asked me about standards-based grading. So I have a couple of books that are on my to-do list to get through and to read because we're going in that direction as a whole school. But um, essentially, I use a lot of pro uh, project-based learning. So rubrics that go along with projects that would be actually representing what they what they would do in the real world. So when we do our unit on parent involvement and communication, the students are developing a letter that would go home if they were an elementary school teacher, a brochure if they were opening a, a child care center. They create what we always try and do authentic assessments. So whatever they would do in the real world is what I try and bring into the classroom. That's cool because we've been talking about this a lot recently on the podcast is just trying to make learning as real as possible for kids and to try to mimic stuff that, you know, like you said, is authentic to what they might actually be one day doing. So it sounds like you guys with this program, it's might be the the most quintessential example of that because that's that's literally what it is their whole curriculum or at least a part of it i guess would be you know the lesson plans and and they try it and they they uh you know they get feedback on that see how it went and revise and there's projects along the way so that's that's just awesome to see that the kind of stuff that we've been talking about is really in in action here i want to transition to and i back to something you said earlier it was funny to me because you mentioned saying yes as going through all the uh you know the different you know, first the school-based teacher of the year and then the county-based, and you sort of just keep applying for these things, not really knowing what to expect. Mm -hmm. I felt exactly the same way. I was like, man, I don't need, at first I wasn't even going to apply for the, the state award, but so, like you said, so many people were trying to talk me into it, like, ah, you got to do it, you got to do it. You were one of them. So finally I submitted that, the video and I was like, man, I am not even totally sure that I want to get this thing because I have no idea what it's going to be. But now you're in the middle of that process. And as I understand it, as the state teacher, Teacher of the Year winner, you are you're currently not in your school right now. Is that correct? You're on a you're working for the Department of Education, right? So it's funny because I'm on a six month sabbatical. So my colleagues, some of them, have seen me on campus for different meetings. You know, I'm still involved as a teacher leader at my school, so I'll go back to as many things as I can. And they they see me, and it's like the Walking Dead. Like, what are you doing right. here? <laughs> hi, I'm here for a meeting. And they're like, aren't you on sabbatical? And the way they say it is almost like I should be on an island somewhere <laughs> in the sun. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm, I'm on a sabbatical from my classroom. So right. I am working for the Department of Ed, 
which has been a really great experience. Everyone there is so nice. And I just feel like um, it's the unknown. Like when people would say the state, and I'm like in quotes, the yeah. state. You don't really know what that is. And being there, a lot of educators are there, people that have worked in education for many, many years and then transitioned into this role. Um, they're always looking for, for the best thing for our students and for our teachers. And so now I'm getting a glimpse of that. And I'm working in the Office of Recruitment, Preparation, and I was going to say Retention. I think it's called something else right sure. now. It's, it's <laughs> RPR. And so the idea is that I'm getting to celebrate teachers, get involved in the the initiatives with uh, celebrating diversity and, and looking at the, the teaching pipeline and all of that. So I'm getting to really see a lot. Um, it's something I would have never had the opportunity to do otherwise. So how do you how do you fill your days? Like what does a typical day look like in this new temporary role? Okay, so the first month of January was meeting everyone at the DOE. So going in, having one-on-one -on -one meetings or having department meetings. And again, everyone was so nice, you know, welcoming, just sharing with me what they do on a daily basis. Then it got to be a lot of emails and phone calls for, for appearances and those haven't started yet. So it's just been a, uh, yep, sure. No problem. Okay. <laughs> I'll be there. So I've been scheduling all of these for April, May, and June. So I'm getting nervous because these are all events where I'll have to speak and give presentations. Um, and then in the most immediate time frame, I've been doing a lot of school visits. So going around, seeing different schools, uh, meeting people. And now I'm starting to plan out some workshops, which is new to me. I haven't, I've only presented in front of my own colleagues. So now this is something that's going to really stretch stretch my learning curve, I guess, and get me out there and, and try something new. So what are some of the workshops that you're planning? Okay, so next week, I'm going to be in Parsippany, uh, Troy Hills School District, and they have their professional development day. So I'm working on that uh, on an ed camp type workshop. One of them is just about elevating the perception of the teaching profession, which is a mouthful, but it's something I've been working on with the state. And another one will be on uh, building a community within the classroom. So I'm not the expert necessarily, but I will provide some ideas and I'll be a facilitator in the workshop. That sounds amazing. You know, especially how long have you been teaching? So I'm in my 11th year now. So 11 years and somewhere between, you know, 10 and let's say 15, you, you reach this place of uh, you need a change sometimes. I know I went through it after 10 years. I'm not sure if I really needed a change. I just wanted a challenge and I, I definitely met that challenge. And uh, so I, I feel like you just get to take a six month piece mm -hmm. of time to get refreshed. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of cool things. So you'll want to take whatever you learn now and, you know, reapply that to the classroom. Maybe it might buy you another five to 10 years before you realize that, <laughs> hey, maybe I want to go change. back and be a principal or, or something else. So. Absolutely. I taught English for six years and then my former teacher retired. And that's when this whole thing of, you know, would you want to teach the Academy for Education came up. And I was like, you know what, this would be, like you say, a challenge or or something to see my, to, to grow and to learn more. So I took that on. And it is sort of one of those things that I think as a teacher, you're always trying to, to get better and to learn more and do more. And this is certainly, it has opened up a lot of new paths for me. So many connections, um, I get to be a part of a state group that's just all the former New, Jer New Jersey Teachers of the Year. 
Then I have a cohort now of my county teachers of the year. We met about a week or two ago, just a great group of people. And then there's a whole United States. There's um, actually 58 state teachers of the year, which I know doesn't sound right because we have 50 states, but we count the territories and some other um, areas that, that are involved. And so now that's another group. So I just feel like my professional network has really grown since all of this started. I want to make sure to ask you before we close this out about hashtag inspire NJ teachers. I know that's one of your passion projects now that you're on your sabbatical working for the DOE. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I've been trying to work on this um, idea of elevating the perception of the teaching profession. For me, you know, I never needed anyone to elevate it for me. I always wanted to be a teacher. But unfortunately, our culture right now and our society, there isn't always this positive perception of what we do. And so I would want nothing more than to share how great of a profession it really is. And when meeting with the county cohort, I I shared the idea, you know, what do you guys think? Let's just throw it out there. They jumped on it. And and we have a list of ideas. Basically, we want to go with the hashtag um, inspire NJ teachers in order to share videos, pictures, ideas with one another in New Jersey, but then also hoping that it spreads beyond New Jersey and just to show people what a great profession we're in. That's awesome. A a noble cause for sure. And I'm definitely going to be a part of spreading the word of hashtag inspire NJ teachers. The podcast will be definitely. And um, I think the last thing we have to get to because this is Got Tech, the podcast is some of the ed tech that you use uh, or have used uh, in your classroom or or at least teach your pre-service teachers about in your program there at uh, Academy for Education and Learning. So you said you had a couple things uh, in mind that you are are using in terms of the ed tech world. So maybe you could enlighten us with some of those and we could maybe share some of our own two cents on those things also. Yeah. So actually, this is kind of funny. When I was out in California recently meeting the other state teachers of the year, uh, we had a representative from Google and he had come out into the center of the room first night we're there meeting everyone. And he says, I'm from Google in New York. Where's my New Jersey State Teacher of the Year? (laughs) And at this point, we're all like uneasy because we're trying to get to know one another. We're sitting with people we've just met. So everyone starts clapping and screaming and pointing at me. And I'm like, did I miss something? He just wanted to point out that New Jersey has, I don't know if we're the top or just, we have a ton of Google Classroom users. And that is something that I use. We use that in our school a lot, Google Classroom. So that has provided me with a great platform for um, just sharing information with my students, submitting work to me, uh, all of that kind of thing. So we use Google Classroom and all of the Google apps quite frequently. That's something I'm very familiar with. That's pretty cool. We talk about the Google platforms all the time. And you're right, New Jersey does kind of seem to be this epicenter where there's so many people who are so familiar with these different things. Definitely one of our favorites. There was one thing that came up, and this has come up on our podcast before, and I thought it might apply to you, honestly. And guys, I don't know if you remember this. This is going way back to our first year doing the podcast, but I thought it might be kind of cool maybe something you could bring to your students. Um, there's a company called Mersion, M-U-R-S-I-O-N. And Mersion, I think they're based out of Florida, but they develop virtual reality training programs for workplaces. So they do all all kinds of stuff. They'll train you to like work behind a cash register in like this, this fake virtual environment. And they started doing the same thing for classrooms. So what they do is they you you pay for their technology. I have no idea what it costs, but <laughs> you stand in front of a screen and the screen displays a classroom of five students. They are virtual students, so they're computer generated, but you can interact with them and tell them to do things. And there's a, a bunch of different simulations you can run. So there's like a classroom management simulation where the kids act out 
on purpose and you as the teacher and you have like a headset and a microphone so you can hear them you can see them they can hear you and see you too you can tell them to do things to try and fix whatever misbehaviors they're having and they respond in certain ways sometimes they respond well sometimes they don't respond well and it kind of tests that teacher to kind of put them through the paces of doing this but with a fake classroom so you're not tying up uh, an actual classroom of students to get this practice it just kind of struck me because it's something I'm pretty familiar with and we're talking to you today so that's maybe a cool thing you could try to tie in sounds terrifying it's i did it one time it is absolutely bizarre to talk to fake kids because you literally talk to them and they talk they like they talk right back to you just like normal kids it's the weirdest thing ever so (laughs) i was the kid who played school probably through eighth grade i'm gonna say as embarrassing as that might sound and remember eighth graders now are way cooler than we were when we were younger yeah oh yeah but um I would play school with my brother and I remember a story my parents I overheard them telling their friends how great their kids were and how well we got along and the example they used is oh my son would sit and play school with my daughter for hours and he was such a great kid and I walked in and I said wait you know that I was bribing him right so my parents were mortified and they what do you mean I said I was giving him gum and CDs and spare change just to have a real student. So I would have loved something like that as a kid. I I don't know. It still seems super unnatural to me. I guess that's no different than virtual school. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Right. It's like a computer game for you. But I think one of the reasons why they made that program is there's a lot of schools that won't let their student teachers uh, videotape. So they use that as a workaround to, to meet that competency. So another one... I'm sure that you heard of it, but maybe not. Maybe your students can use with their preschoolers, and that's Class Dojo. Have you heard of Class Dojo? My friend teaches elementary school, and she had shared with me how great that was. I had not even thought about having the high schoolers use that, and I think that would be definitely on my top list of things to go to in September and try with them. So. Just for anyone that may not know what that is, Class Dojo is a classroom behavior management tool, but it also allows for a community of communication between teachers, students, and parents. And uh, one of the cool features that I, I saw that they have on it now is like an e-portfolio where a teacher or the student can take a picture of what they're working on if they have a phone. I'm guessing with elementary kids, uh, I don't know, I'm far removed from that scene, but uh, I'm guessing that not too many second graders or preschoolers have cell phones. I could be wrong, but the uh, the teacher could take pictures of it and it will send this little e-portfolio message to the parents saying, hey, little Charlie's working on this. Are you proud of him? Or, you know, whatever you want to say to him. But that is another cool thing. And as you get with older students, and maybe this would be with the ninth graders that are working, you can do what I call the, I don't know, the upper level of class dojo, which is class craft and basically the ninth graders or high schoolers would be able to make an avatar and then you assign them different assignments whether it's like one part of the project-based learning scenario and then you could grade it and they earn points and within uh, the game after they earn points they can use it to buy stuff to make their avatar better like a warrior or something like that and then the whole class at some point can uh, take on this 
villain together with using their points. Uh, so that's a that's another one. I mean, let's let's be real. In eighth grade, I would say we were playing video games, just not to the extent in which kids mm-hmm. are playing today. So we gotta kind of meet them halfway, and if we can find ways to bring games into the classroom to have them motivated to learn, I say, let's go for it. So that, that's another one. So class dojo, class craft, those are the two suggestions that I have for you, one for your preschool class and one for your uh, future teachers. All right, so we'll start to close it out, Jen. We'd like to thank you so much for being on this episode of Got Tech, the podcast. And we'd like to encourage everyone to stick around because we're going to play one of my favorite games, and that is Two Truths and a Lie, Ed Tech version. This time I'm going to put Geis up against Jen to see who is the better lie detector. So stick around. You can follow Got Teched outside the podcast at gottech.com or on Twitter at WeGotTeched. Okay, so we're back for one of my favorite segments of all time. This is Two Truths and a Lie, Ed Tech style. If you've been listening to the show before, you know we've done this segment a couple times. This time we're going to do it again, except we're going to bring... Jen, into the mix, and as I run through my two truths and one lie, uh, we're going to have Geist pick as usual, but now we're also going to have Jen sort of go against him to see who is the better lie detector. Guys, how do you feel about having somebody to compete with today? Uh, well, my track record, you know, is before me when we play this game. I just hope that your skills got a little bit better picking out these articles than last time. Just so you know, Jen, uh, he doesn't show me them. Every once in a while, he throws the uh, titles of the article into the show notes. I try not to look at them. I don't look at them. Uh, this time, I think he did it right before the show, so I don't even know what they're about. But he hasn't stumped me yet. And I think it's just his skills of reworking uh, what the article means. It just doesn't make any sense when he says it. So <laughs> I'm sure you'll be able to get them as well. If not, maybe I just have a gift. I don't know. <laughs> so here's some of the, the, the background rules uh, for maybe new listeners. And since it's Jen's first time, I'm going to read three article titles of these three. Two of them are 100% word for word true. One out of the three is false slightly doctored from an actual article or one that I've made up completely. Um, And your guy's job is simple. It's just to try and pick whichever one you think is the lie. Jen, does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm ready to go. I have faith in us. I don't have faith in Nick. Eh, Let's give this a shot. I don't like that you're calling me out. This came up last time. See, the thing is, he has this crazy, insane ability to detect lies. It's uncanny. He can always tell when somebody's being truthful or honest and it's just it's a it's a weird almost like a sixth sense and last time you started accusing me of being bad at lying about these titles so that's what's happening right now but i i think i've got you this time all right let's go all right so first title and i'll kind of go through all three and then we can go back and see which one is the lie first title is listening to music significantly impairs creativity so let that sink in listening to music significantly impairs creativity so that could be true that could be a lie That's the first one. Here's the second one. Children who eat lunch score 18% lower on reading tests. Very interesting. Children who eat lunch score 18% lower on reading tests. And lastly, doing science. And that's in quotations, doing science rather than being scientists. So these are words that like a teacher would say to their classroom. Doing science rather than being scientists is more encouraging to female students. So the idea being that as a teacher, if you use the words, we're going to do science today, that's more encouraging than if you say we are going to be 
scientists today. So those are my three. Guys, I'm going to start with you since you've done this before. Let's go back to that first title. Listening to music significantly impairs creativity. What do you think? True? Or is that the lie? Mm, I think uh, if I would, I would say that is false, just like straight out of the shoot. But I kind of want to go through all of them. Okay. Um, before we do that, but I'd like to actually throw this over to Jen and see if we're in agreement. Uh, we're on video conference, so I just on the count of three, I would like to hold up fingers to say which one is definitely 100% true. Okay. <laughs> and see what she has to say. Can you read the third uh, title for us you want, again? You want the third one? Okay. Doing science rather than being scientists is more encouraging to female students. All right. Forget the fingers. That one's true. I, I agree. That's right. definitely true. That one's an easy one. All right. So you guys are both in agreement that that last one is the true one? Right. That one is 100% true. Yeah, that one was pretty easy. Really? I thought that would be the one you think is false. How is that? I guess it makes sense. I was thinking it would be the other way around. No, I mean. Because, yeah, I'm thinking that when I hear scientists, I think male right away. Okay. So as a girl, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to be a scientist. That's a guy thing. How could I be a scientist? So, okay, our teacher just wants us to do this activity and do science. Okay, sure. I can handle it. See, I was thinking along the same lines with it. We just got done talking about our uh, PLTW program, our project lead the way, and that's an engineering pathway. So in STEM pathway, and most of those uh, classes are overran by males. Mm -hmm. And it's because we keep promoting them as such rather than just say, hey, we want to create a class that is based on these courses that help you solve problems. So if we called that program solving real world problems, I bet we would get more of an even gender split in those classes. Okay. So we were on the same page here. I guess so. All well, right. I mean, the, yeah, that's 100% true. There's a psychological study recently that found that young girls uh, respond and are more engaged when teachers use the lingo, we are going to do science, rather than saying we are going to be scientists. So nice job, guys. That's impressive. Let me let me read the other two so you can pick, because I guess out of the two, we could just you could just decide which one the lie is going to be. The remaining choices are listening to music significantly impairs creativity and children who eat lunch score 18% lower on reading tests. Ah, see, I didn't catch this the first time. Oh, no. This one, I have this one down 100%. <laughs> okay. I, I, I could say that right now because they tell you to eat before taking the SATs. So you're telling me now that eating lowers their their scores, and that is 100% false. If I took a test on an empty stomach, I'd barely get through the test just reading it, not even answering it. All right, wait, I have I have another side to this. So after I eat, I'm a little tired. Maybe I'm not as focused. I kind of just want to get going with the rest of my day so I can relax. Could that be the reason why now they're scoring lower? So you bring up a good point because reflecting back to my high school days, after lunch, I was definitely a lot more tired. Hmm. I'm still going to... What was the first title again? Okay, so here's one more time, the two titles, and then you guys can make your final choices. Listening to music significantly impairs creativity and children who eat lunch score 18% lower on reading tests. One so, of those is false. I got to throw this out there. Significantly impairs creativity. That is like a huge number. If you're saying significantly, and I don't see that being one way or another changing the number that much from 
from midway. There's going to be some students where it doesn't affect them at all, maybe a little bit that hinders them because they can't handle distractions, but it's also going to help some. I'm going to stick with my second one. I'm going to say the second one is false, but uh, okay. Jen, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Okay. So initially I was going to say, oh, it's absolutely the first one because I've always heard that music helps with creativity and memorizing things and whatnot. So now based on your explanation of oh, no. the word significantly, oh, no. I, I do agree with you because I, I was going to go with the first one. So if you had not shared that insight with me, I would have said the first one. Okay. I'm definitely, I'm on board though. Is that okay? We can have the same one. Of course. Well, it's us versus Nick. I don't oh, see great. it. Okay, I don't great. see us as like, you know, <laughs> going against each other. I see us okay, going no, no, no. against That's Nick. That's perfect. We have to be on the same page. I'm with you on that then. I just can't believe it. You guys got it. Every single time. Listen, if I, if as soon as I jo I try to really put myself in your shoes, both your guys' shoes this time and say, okay, if someone told me that listening to music, which is one of the most creative expressions anyone could do for anything, listening to music impairs creativity, I would for sure think that was a lie, but that one's true. How did you know that was true? The impairs thing, you're, I don't even understand your argument. I, I don't know. I mean, well, we survived. It's a... Uh, it's extremely impressive, but you guys, you guys got him. So congratulations to Geis again and Jen to you as well. Supposedly, a new study has found that listening to music does significantly impair creativity, which goes against the popular view that music enhances creativity. Um, and researchers have found that it can actually have the opposite effect, which is fascinating, but apparently there's evidence to suggest that. This, of course, means that children who eat lunch score 18% lower was the lie. The actual title is children who eat lunch score 18% higher on reading tests, which actually kind of does make sense. There you go. We win All again. Right. Goose egg next uh, Nick for the... I think it's at least 10th time. I mean, I think I'm done with this game, though. I don't know if I can beat you. <laughs> Maybe next time we should switch it around. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you should. But I'm terrible at that kind of thing also. Well, it's a win-win situation for <laughs> All me. Right. All, All right. right. So, uh, Jen, thanks a lot for being on the show. It's awesome to have uh, your perspective. I could definitely see why you got State Teacher of the Year. I think that's very cool. We'll continue to share the hashtag uh, InspireNJTeachers so people can look out for that. But uh, thanks again. We appreciate your time and thanks for being on. Thank you, guys. If you could just have everyone follow my journey at NJ Stoy 2019, I would appreciate it. And we will definitely put that as well as the uh, hashtag in the show notes. Make sure you give Jen a follow and see what her journey is going to be like over the next three or four months. Uh, I'll definitely be checking it out. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, everybody. So we got time to talk with Jen, and Jen's awesome. She's such a great spirit. She's high energy, and she's very motivating. I mean, she doesn't really need to say anything about education, and I would probably feel motivated just because that's her nature. Yeah, talking to her is kind of uh, uh, easy to see why she won such a prestigious award like New Jersey State Teacher of the Year. And uh, in our conversation with her, we were talking about student-centered learning and project-based learning and things like that, and also going along 
with a mastery chat, hashtag mastery chat on Twitter last night. They were talking about student-centered learning. And often in the conversation, something else came up in that chat that we kind of always talk about uh, when we think of student-centered learning, and that's a personalized learning strategy. And one of the things that we think about with the personalized learning strategy are choice boards. Yeah, choice boards are really exciting, and it's an amazing, amazing tool to use in the classroom if you're interested in trying to differentiate or make your classroom more student-centered in a way that sort of runs itself and kind of brings all of these very difficult tasks that I think a lot of teachers find challenging to sort of feels almost over but with a choice board, I think it kind of naturally makes this all very possible. So I I think we need to take some time today and and really go through our take on uh, personalized learning choice boards. And uh, I know, Nick, you want to talk about a brief description of it, and and then we're going to go into some examples, and then we'll go into the way that we kind of bring choice boards into our classrooms, which is our take on a choice board, which is a little bit different. Okay, so let's start just for the people that maybe haven't heard of a choice board or Maybe you have heard of it, but you've just never seen one because it is kind of a visual thing. So I mean, it, it takes a little bit to describe. Uh, but really, at it, at its simplest level, a choice board is just a graphic organizer set up kind of like a tic-tac-toe board. They can be three by three, four by four. I've seen some really big ones, but. I think if they get too large, it almost gets kind of overwhelming. Um, But it's a graphic organizer where each square of the board is a different activity that the students can choose to engage in as they either practice a skill or learn a concept or demonstrate mastery in some way. The whole idea being, of of course, that it's called a choice board because the students get to choose whichever whichever of the options on the board that they feel best suits their learning style or their intelligence type and it really kind of makes it personalized in such an easy, simple way. Uh, Some of the benefits is, like I said, it kind of just gives students the power to choose how they're going to learn a particular topic. Like I said, we kind of wanted to build on Jen's overall theme of personalized learning from earlier. And what what better way to do it than to kind of literally say, okay, guys, here's, you know, if you do a simple three by three choice board class, here's here's nine different options and you can choose whichever one or two that you want to, you want to work on the most. And I think students really respond great to this. It kind of lets them know that you're giving them these options. A popular way to use the choice boards also is to go with the, they call it like a tic-tac-toe method where out of maybe the nine squares, they have to go diagonal and do any three or diagonal the other way. They still get to choose which three they do, uh, but to kind of then sort of add on and maybe make it a little bit more diverse. So that's the gist of how a choice board is set up. I want to caution everybody because I, I find making nine choices especially in the middle school grades and uh, maybe even freshman, sophomore year. When you make nine choices, it's easy to overwhelm your students. All right, so what I mean by this is, really, you want to give them choice. Make it three different activities of that all meet the same concepts and the same standards that we're, we're testing for the same thing there. However, they're three different choices. Sometimes nine, even six is overkill because they'll spend over half a period, maybe even the full period, reading through each one of the choices and they haven't done anything to move forward or progress with mastering a skill or a content area. So that's my caution right there. But I think choice boards are an amazing tool. The other thing that I think it's important to think about when you're designing a choice board is to make sure you try and hit as many different intelligence types as possible that your students might have. Also, as many different learning styles as they might have. Got some visual learners, some auditory learners, some kinesthetic. Ideally, the different things you include on the choice board kind of cover as many of those as possible. And that includes the intelligence 
intelligence types too. Maybe you've got some some kids that are really naturally smart, the the naturalist intelligence. So you get them outside doing something. Maybe you've got some musically smart kids. Maybe uh, maybe some linguistic or interpersonal. But a, a dis, something as simple as a discussion, small group dis- discussion, could be one of the options on the choice board. So these are the types of things you want to think about when designing your choice board. Yeah. So think about what your students' strengths are and see how you could use those strengths to maybe help them uh, become better at their content area. Not every kid is going to be a math kid. Not every kid is going to be a science kid. And I, when I taught science, I always told students that tell me that I'm not good at science. And I'm like, that's okay. Not everyone will be good at science. Not everyone will like science, but if we could find a way that's going to make you interested in learning the content, then we're you know, we're well on our way. And uh, I think that is a great point we need to teach to their strengths while developing their weaknesses. So another, uh, one of the other great things you can do to design your first choice board is really just go online and look up some of these. I know uh, Pinterest is just one place that has tons and tons of pre-created choice boards that teachers have made and put out there for all grade levels, all subject areas, just to kind of give you a sense of some of the different things. Because I know a natural reaction when trying to make your first one of these might kind of be, well, how am I supposed to come up with stuff to fill all these different choices on the board. Well, there's just so many things that are already out there. I'm looking at a couple examples right now. Uh, one of one of them is for elementary age kids. It just has to do with spelling. So there's things. Uh, one of the options says rainbow spelling, where you have to write your words. And I guess these would be like the vocab words you're trying to spell. Write your words five times each with different colors. Another of the option is silly letters. Write each word using crazy letters. Another option is silly sentences. Write each word in a silly made-up sentence. Uh, rhyme time. Write each word combined with a word that rhymes with it. Another one has to do with acting out the meaning of the word. So you can see kind of we're trying to vary the types of things the students can do to help them learn and remember what they're engaging in. All, all good stuff. So I want to kind of share a little bit about the uh, personalized choice board that I made and it kind of re- resembles a target. All right. So picture a bullseye with three rings on the outside of it, all right? So the bullseye itself, that's the skill that we're trying to teach our students. That's the content area or standard or competency that we want them to learn. So eventually we wanna get in there, but to do that, we gotta start off a little bit broad and then we gotta hone in on exactly what we wanna test or teach. So the most outer ring, and I think I'm gonna put this in the show notes as well. I'll put a picture in the show notes, but uh, the outer ring is the introduction to the content. So maybe they're watching a YouTube video, reading an article, or they're going through a presentation with the teacher. A little bit of, uh, I don't know, traditional style teaching where uh, the teacher is going to be the uh, sage on the stage if that's what needs to happen to make this uh, lesson go and that's what you're comfortable with. We could start there and then maybe try to get into more of a student-centered approach from there. So there's ways that we could blend our teaching uh, as well. But this is your intro. How are you going to expose the students to content? All right. I personally like the YouTube or the uh, article or something that's going to make it stand out, something that they're going to be able to discuss in small groups. Maybe some uh, guided notes that could be taken with that video or they have to answer questions and and then later on the teacher comes back and kind of helps them figure out the the blanks in between the questions uh, or the main topics. So once they get that general introduction to that standard or the competency or whatever we're trying to get them to master, we need to check their progress. And that's the formative assessment. Whether you're doing a Kahoot or a Gim Kit or uh, Ed Puzzle, 
something that is testing to make sure that they are getting what you're trying to lay out for them. All right. So we want to make sure that they are progressing towards mastering that skill. And there could be a couple different formative assessments there. We could have a discussion. We could have them diagram something. We can have them take that online assessment, whatever you want to do there. But we're moving closer to the bullseye. The next one is we want to check for mastery. And how do we do that? Well, some of us test. Other people do a digital portfolio. Other people do a research paper or a presentation or a podcast. We have so many different ways that we can do a summative assessment to make sure that the students actually understand the key concept that we're trying to teach them. And it is okay if it's if each uh, activity is helping them get a couple different mastery concepts. That's perfectly fine. But at the end, we want to make sure that they have mastered at least at a proficient level uh, everything that we laid out for them. This is this is a really great, I think, a new sort of a creative take on a choice board. You kind of get the sense once you look at enough examples of these things, and you guys may find this if you start investigating them yourselves. That what why should you limit yourself to this uh, sort of standard checkerboard pattern? So I really like Geis's example of, of sort of more like a dartboard theme where you start on the outer circle where there's a ton of options for how to learn stuff and every cut it, everybody kind of moves inwards towards that same central point. I just think that's a really interesting take. And you may find that there's even other shapes, other directions that you could take this even, even beyond a square or sort of a circle target kind of a shape. Just remember that as you go through this, especially for the summative assessment, you need to have some type of rubric there. So you're not, you don't necessarily have to make a rubric for every different choice that they get to make, whether it is a slideshow or a podcast or some type of animation that they're going to make on Google Slides. You don't need to make a separate rubric for that. That's just the way that they're presenting the content the information. Your rubric needs to be based on content understanding and mastering of a particular skill or skills. That's where, uh, that's that's going to help you because once you have these nine activities already um, brought into choice boards, you could keep building your little repertoire, your personalized learning repertoire there and keep adding and adding and adding. And then that way when you're coming into these uh, choice boards and you're developing these choice boards, you have all these things. All you have to do is plug it in, all right, and give them the rubric for, that is specific for that content. So we're not uh, recreating the wheel every time we make a choice board, nor do we have to use a choice board every single topic that we teach. I mean, this is just one of the options to kind of throw a little bit of uh, sugar and spice into your lessons and change it up a little bit. I'm glad, really glad you brought up the rubric thing. I was just having a conversation about this with a teacher the other day, and that was their exact response. So they saw on one that I had made that had actually 12 different uh, squares on it. It was like three by four grid, and the immediate response was, how are you going to grade 12 different things? And and I think that's a, a great question. And if you design it right, there's just one rubric that lets you grade all 12 of those options the same way. Your rubric needs to focus more on uh, quality and hard work and what the information that's being portrayed and how well it's shown rather than sort of minor details about whatever method they used, whether they drew something or acted it out. That's less important. That's more just for the student's own benefit. I think we should also sort of point out some of the benefits that technology can give a choice board. I know a lot of teachers just do like a physical choice board on like a bulletin board or a poster in the room, which is totally fine. Uh, I would advocate why not throw your choice board into a Google drawing or, or a Google slides where uh, within each option of things that the students can work on, maybe there's some helpful links that show them how to proceed or takes, take
takes them to sort of automatically open up uh, different resources or, or helps them to begin whatever presentation they're going to build. And uh, of course, with all the, the Google uh, Google apps for education, you can sort of easily build in all that stuff too. So I think there's tons of really exciting ways that tech could help you build an awesome, awesome choice board. Until next time, you're listening to Got Tech, the podcast, www.gottech.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at WeGotTech.